0: What's going on Ninja Nerds? This is our first ever podcast. My name's Rob. I'm here with Zach today and we're going to be talking about cardiac tamponade. But before we get started, what you guys have to do is check out our website. We have our own website, ninjaneerd.org. You can get Every single note illustration that we've ever completed, and you can follow along. And you can really learn a lot. So again, NinjaNerd.org. This is where we're going to be taking all of the notes and information for this this uh, podcast. But again, we're finally doing it. We're doing a
1: podcast. It's a lot of fun, uh, and, and we're excited. Zach, what, how you feel, man? Man, this is super exciting. A lot of you guys who are out there listening to this podcast, you guys asked for these, um, and we're just super excited to be able to get started with this, man. We're starting with a behemoth of a topic, that being cardiac tamponade. <laughs>
0: That's all right, right? It's, yeah, it's, it, it's a good. Be fun. It'll be fun. Awesome. So Zach, give, give us a little
1: bit of, an, of a definition and in, introduce us. What is cardiac tamponade? Yeah, cardiac tamponade is definitely one of those interesting cardiac diseases. And so the basic definition of cardiac tamponade is when there's a rapid accumulation of fluid within the pericardial cavity. And we'll talk about what those types of fluid are, but whenever you have this rapid accumulation of fluid in the pericardial cavity your pericardium has to have a certain amount of time to accommodate that fluid and stretch so that it doesn't actually start squeezing on the heart. But whenever the fluid accumulates rapidly, it doesn't have that appropriate time to accommodate that fluid and stretch. And so it starts really squeezing on the chambers of the heart, particularly on the right side more than the left side though. The other thing is, If you don't have it rapidly accumulating, maybe there's like a slow, gradual progression of fluid that's accumulating in the pericardial cavity over time. You get to the point where the pericardial stretch limit is reached and they just can't stretch anymore. And when that happens, it starts really compressing on the heart. Again, really more the right ventricle and the right atrium than the left side. And we'll talk about why in a little bit. But the whole problem with that is if you squeeze the heart, you're not allowing for it to fill with blood, get good venous return. And that can lead to a lot of complications that we'll see in this disease. That's awesome. I mean,
0: my, my background is physical therapy, so I'm not really sure what you just said, but um,
1: it, it sounds like a pretty scary condition. Absolutely. Definitely. Cardiac tamponade is one of those conditions that it's you need to be able to diagnose it very quickly and treat it very rapidly because it can progress. All right. Got it. So let's do a quick recap. Cardiac tamponade, it's due to
0: a rapid accumulation of fluid without time to stretch or slow the accumulation that reaches the stretch limit of the pericardium. All right, Zach. So hit me with
1: the most important common causes of cardiac tamponade. Awesome. So yeah, cardiac tamponade, there can be a bunch of different causes, but really what we can break this down to is into two categories. One is there is a hemopericardium. That means that there's blood. That's the type of fluid that's accumulating in the pericardial cavity. So things that you want to think about here, and these are the ones that rapidly accumulate. These are the scary ones. This would be something like an ascending aortic dissection. So you have a a dissection that rips through the intimal layer, right into the medial layer, and then into the pericardial cavity. That can lead to a very quick cardiac tamponade physiology. Another one is whenever somebody has an MI, particularly their left, uh, a left anterior descending artery that causes an infarct of their free wall of the left ventricle. What happens is whenever you infarct that tissue, it gets replaced with granulation tissue. That's really weak. And so it just explodes and causes blood to just pour into the pericardial cavity. Probably often don't see this because these patients usually die. The other one is that there's some kind of iatrogenic type of treatment here. So you're going in to get like a, a, a stent, maybe of place for uh, some type of a left anterior descending artery occlusion. Uh, so you're doing something like that. You're getting a cabbage done. You're trying to ablate like some tissue for atrial fibrillation. Or maybe you're doing like a valve repair. Repair During those situations, maybe you nick an artery. Maybe you actually hit a part of like a ventricular wall or atrial wall and just cause blood to seep into the pericardial cavity. The last one is maybe that you just get like, you know, you take like a tomahawk to the chest. And, <laughs> and there's some type of like stabbing or, you know, introduction of some type of foreign object that punctures the ventricular wall and causes blood to leak out. So those would be the rapidly accumulating ones. The other ones is that there's non-bloody fluid. And so these are like non-hemopericardiums. These are generally gonna be more of the causes of pericarditis. So there's a lot of different causes for pericarditis and that includes like autoimmune things like SLE and rheumatoid arthritis. That includes like uremia in patients with a severe acute kidney injury where they build up a lot of urea in the blood or they're like chronic kidney disease, like end-stage renal disease. The other ones could be infectious. And I would say this is definitely a one to remember. So infections such as Coxsackie B virus, the new one, SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19, and sometimes bacterial infections. The other one is that is definitely important to remember is neoplasias, especially like lymphoma, lung cancer, breast cancer, renal cell carcinoma. These are ones that are extremely important to remember. And then you know what else is interesting is that the patients who have those types of neoplasias, they get radiation therapy. Sometimes that can also cause pericarditis. As well. So again, don't forget those as the very important causes of cardiac tamponade. Really interesting. So,
0: all right, review. We got a, we got a couple things here. Rapid accumulation. So causes. One more time here. Hemopericardium. Quick things you got to remember. Four things, guys. Aortic dissection, wall rupture post MI, uh, an iatrogenic cause, maybe like a surgery, and then trauma. Going back to maybe more of the non-bloody fluid. We have pericarditis. Causes. I want you to remember five of them. They're going to be infectious, which is going to be the the main one. you got to remember that one. Autoimmune, neoplasia, uremia, and then radiation. All right, Zach, so now we have shredded the causes. Let's take it to the next level. Let's talk a little bit more about the clinical features, some of the physical exam findings, and then a little bit of the underlying pathophysiology.
1: Awesome. Yeah, we did shred that, Rob. So let's move into the clinical features. What we're going to talk about now is how will these patients generally present? And so we'll have to understand and really kind of get the pathophysiology behind this. So the big thing to remember is Beck's triad. This is commonly one of the things that you guys will see on the exams. So Beck's triad is a component of hypotension a jugular venous distension, as well as some type of like distant or muffled heart sounds. Now let's explain why that happens. In patients who have cardiac tamponade, they have a reduction of venous return. And again, remember I told you that there's the pericardial fluid in the pericardial cavity. It's accumulating. The pericardium doesn't have time to stretch. So it pushes on the heart. Remember I told you it pushes on the right atrium and the right ventricle more than the left ventricle and the left atrium. It's just because the walls in that right side of the heart are thinner because they're a lower pressure circuit. So because of that, they collapse easier because we are collapsing the right ventricle and the right atrium. That's receiving blood from your superior vena cava. If your superior vena cava can't fill the right atrium, it just backs up into the brachiocephalic and then into your internal jugular vein. And that's where you get that jugular venous distension. The other thing is, if we have all of this fluid that's accumulating within the pericardial cavity, and you're trying to put your stethoscope on the chest, that sounds of S1 and S2 heart sounds that you hear, it's going to have to travel through the chambers of the heart, through the walls of the heart, through the big fluid in the pericardial cavity, and then through the chest wall to get to the stethoscope. So that's one of the reasons for that. And the last one is hypotension. Hypotension can be a twofold reason. One, If we're compressing the right ventricle and the right atrium, where we don't get blood into it during inspiration or during that venous return process, we're not going to get a good venous return. So when you have a low venous return, you get what's called a low preload. Low preload drops your stroke volume. That drops your cardiac output. If you drop cardiac output, that drops your mean arterial pressure. And that can lead to the hypotension findings. The second reason that this can happen, and this is one of the interesting things, and we'll talk about a little bit later, is during inspiration, that's the probably the most profound time when blood is going into the right side of the heart. So whenever you take a deep breath in, the blood should rush into your right ventricle, and it causes a minor shift in the septum. In these patients with cardiac tamponade, it causes a significant shift in their septum when they fill the right ventricle, that it bows into the left ventricle and occludes the venous return to the left ventricle and the blood that's going out of the left ventricle. And that can also drop their stroke volume, their cardiac output, and their blood pressure. That's a finding we'll talk about called pulsus paradoxus. So... Let's actually talk about the next particular finding that you actually see more commonly than you would think in patients with cardiac tamponade. That's dyspnea. That's actually one of their most common presentations. And the reason why is that whenever they're dyspneic, it's that they're actually having this unpleasant sensation of their breathing or they're breathing too fast or they're just short of breath. And the reason why is remember I told you every time you take an inspiration, you suck blood into the right side of the heart. Well, these patients are having difficulty getting blood into the right side of their heart. So they keep breathing as much as they can, maybe deep breaths and faster, because every time they take an inspiration, they get some blood going into the right side of their heart, which helps to augment their blood pressure and their venous return. So that's actually one of the reasons why dyspnea tends to be the most common symptom. The next thing I want you guys to remember besides Beck's triad and also dyspnea is the most common presentation. Is something called pulsus paradoxus. You typically see this when you have something called an arterial line in the patient, which gives you a continuous pressure and a waveform. What happens in pulsus paradoxus is it's defined as a blood pressure, a systolic blood pressure that is less than, there's actually a greater than 10 millimeter mercury drop in the systolic blood pressure during inspiration. The reason this happens is whenever you take a breath in, you yank blood into the right atrium and the right ventricle. And that causes a minor shift, like I said, in the septum towards the left ventricle. Not significant enough that it would drop the pressure in a normal person. But in a patient with cardiac tamponade, when they pull blood into their right atrium and the right ventricle, it's already compressed by the pericardium. And so it starts pushing on the septum a lot more. And it pushes the septum into the left ventricle and reduces the venous return into the left ventricle and reduces the outflow of the left ventricle. That's a reduction in stroke volume, a reduction in cardiac output, and a reduction in blood pressure. So again, when they take a deep breath in, you'll see their systolic blood pressure drop by more than 10 millimeters of mercury, very significant for cardiac tamponade. That's a big, big one to remember. The last thing is that in these patients, if the actual cardiac tamponade is severe enough, it can actually squeeze the heart so much that they get literally no venous return, no stroke volume, no cardiac output, and it can put them into a very significant refractory shock, which we call obstructive shock. Some pretty intense stuff, Rob. This
0: is crazy. Guys, let me just give you a little bit of context here. Okay, Zach right now, he has no script, okay? He's staring at, <laughs> I'm, I'm not joking. He's staring at a wall right now and he's just
1: rattling off this information. Where do you keep, where do you keep this fat? Like, like, like how do you do it? I don't know, man. I guess it's just a lot of reading, guys. You got to keep, as, as long as you understand these diseases, sometimes it's actually easier to remember them. But yeah, it's a pretty intense disease, no doubt
0: about it. It is intense and it makes my sphincter squeal. <laughs> So <laughs> So let me get this straight. Here we go. All right guys, that was a lot of information. Let me try and give a quick recap once again. So, overall, our our main clinical features here. We got Beck's triad. Now, Beck's triad will include three things, okay? Hypotension, jugular venous distension, JVD, and distant heart sounds. Going on a little bit more, dyspnea, which is actually one of the most common features. We also have pulses paradoxes and then worst case scenario. And then my, and, and apparently, you know, your worst fear, um, as a (laughs) practitioner is going to be obstructive shock, right? Absolutely. Awesome. Awesome. So Zach, I'm in the room with this patient, right? I need to establish this diagnosis. Give me the facts. Tell me what I, what do I have to do to diagnose this patient with cardiac tamponade? (laughs)
1: Yeah. So, so as as you said, Rob, let's step it up a notch. Let's give, let's give the people what they want, which is how to diagnose cardiac tamponade without like, you know, having chocolate rain flood from the Hershey (laughs) highway (laughs) in absolute fear of this disease. It's a pretty scary one, but there's a lot of tests that we could do, but really it's going to boil down to two of them, but we'll mention some of the other tests that you would want to remember. First thing that you'd want to get is, a stat chest x-ray and an EKG. And what these can show is Particularly in EKG, one of the most common findings is when patients are hypotensive, they create a reflex tachycardia. So they may be sinus tachycardic, but they also could have atrial fibrillation. But either way, you're, they're probably going to have a reflex tachycardia, whether that be sinus tachycardia or atrial fibrillation, you may see that. The other thing that's really interesting, you may see it, especially on your boards, is that whenever this the fluid in the pericardial cavity and there's a large amount of fluid, the actual mean QRS vector that's going from the left ventricle towards like the lead electrode, particularly like lead two as we use as a rhythm strip, It actually there's an alteration in the QRS amplitude where it's large when it's actually pointing towards that electrode and then it's smaller when it's kind of pointing away from that electrode so you can see something called electrical alternance the other thing is when there's a lot of fluid air tissue that's actually blocking the electrical activity that's going from the left ventricle all the way up to the electrodes on the chest wall so you know if for example air COPD asthma something like that or obesity because there's a lot of tissue or in this case fluid, like a cardiac tamponade with lots of pericardial fluid, that's going to lower the amplitude of those QRS voltages. And so you may see low QRS voltages as well. But again, these aren't going to be super helpful in the diagnosis, but they could maybe lead you into getting something else, which is the next good test. Another thing on the chest X-ray before we get to the best test is you may see some enlargement of the heart, some cardiomegaly. Again, it's non-specific, but it makes you want to go ahead and get that next test. What's the next and most important test that we really need to get? That's the echo. And what you're looking at in the echo is, first off, you may see a pericardial effusion. That's one thing. But you want to make sure that the pericardial effusion is actually causing tamponade physiology. And that's one of the most important things. So what you're looking for is, again, we said that it's going to compress and collapse the right side of the heart more than the left side. So you may see right ventricular collapse and right atrial collapse. But here's the big thing. It has to happen when the ventricles are filling with blood, so during diastole. Zach, real quick, when you're talking about
0: an echo, like, are you doing a bedside echo here? Are you doing a transthoracic? Um, or, or or esophageal, which
1: one are you doing? That's a great question. So yeah, generally in these patients, I prefer to do a transthoracic. That's gonna be a quick bedside echo that you can do. Generally, you can do this in a couple different views. First one that I'll start off with is what's called a sub-xiphoid view. So I'll take the probe and put it right underneath the xiphoid process pointing it up to the heart. And that really gives me a good global look at the atria the ventricles as well as the pericardial cavity. So yeah, that's what I'll definitely do. I'll do a bedside echocardiogram, generally like a trans thoracic echocardiogram. Absolutely. So yeah, when I look at that, I'm looking for again, that right ventricle, right atrial collapse, especially during diastole. The other thing is I'll take the probe and I'll put it over the IVC and look to see if that sucker looks huge. Because generally whenever the right atrium is being collapsed, the blood's just going to pull back into the superior vena cava and inferior vena cava. And so those suckers will be big. The other thing is I'm looking for blood flow across the tricuspid valve with every inspiration. And remember I said that there's a lot of blood flow that's moving into the right side of the heart during inspiration. They'll have a huge amount of blood that's flying across that tricuspid valve every time they take a breath in. It's insane. Whereas if you look at the mitral valve, they'll have very little blood flowing across that valve during inspirations. So that's a big thing. The other thing is you may see that septal bounce. So every time they take a deep breath in, you may see that septum bounce from the right ventricle side to the left ventricle side, which is again, one of that reasons for pulses paradox. And then again, obviously we may see that fluid, but again, make sure that the fluid that you see is not, you're automatically saying, oop, there's fluid. It's tamponade. No, you have to look for these findings that we just talked about on the echo. Now, ultimately, a lot of the time we'll say there's echo findings that definitely are concerning as well as the clinical findings for tamponade. We can kind of diagnose it just with that, but really what really kind of clinches the diagnosis is a pericardial synthesis. And so what we'll actually do is we'll tap the pericardial cavity and pull some of that fluid out of the pericardial cavity and if they were hemodynamically tenuous like they were hypotensive they were tachycardic in those situations we pull the fluid and their blood pressure improves their heart rate kind of you know normalizes a little bit we can say it was a likely tamponade physiology is that's truly the way that we can definitively diagnose tamponade but i would say echo and pericardial are going to be
0: the key rob awesome that's pretty interesting so chest x-ray ekg not going to buy you too much information here uh, you know also let me let, let's put this debate to bed here ekg <laughs> E-C-G. Like, what? (laughs) I just, I I don't know about you guys, but I never know which one to say. Like, I want to say E-C-G, but then E-K-G sounds a little bit cooler. Like, I, I know it's just preference, but like, Zach, like, what do you, like...
1: Uh, What's yeah, your take? I don't know, man. To be honest with you, there's so many different terminology. Like, there's different ways that you could look at it. I prefer EKG. It's just what I kind of like learned when I was in school. But the, you could do ECG, EKG. I think it's all dependent upon the, like, the, uh, maybe like the particular continent or area that you're living in that maybe <laughs> they utilize it. I'm not sure.
0: I, maybe it's just me. I, I never know which <laughs> one to say. I'm just like, I, I don't know. what. How am I feeling today? Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so chest x ray, EKG, they're not going to be too, too helpful. But you know what? If you're doing a full workup, it's going to be helpful. No matter what. Uh, anyway, so the, the real thing we're going to be finding here to assist in the diagnosis of, of a cardiac tamponade is going to be echo and pericardiocentesis. That is going to be key. What we're going to be doing there, we're going to look for right atrial and right ventricular collapse during diastole, remember that's during diastole, and then decreased blood flow going across the mitral valve during inspiration, and then a massive blood flow across the tricuspid valve during inspiration. So if they are uh, hemodynamically unstable and pericardiocentesis improves their hemodynamics, it was likely tamponade. I'll say that one more time. If they are hemodynamically unstable and the pericardiocentesis improves their hemodynamics, again, it was likely tamponade. Amen, brother. Amen, amen. <laughs> All right, Zach, I'm feeling pretty good right now. I don't, I don't know about you. Yeah, I think we're doing pretty good. <laughs> I feel like, you know, again, non-medical, I, I'm a physical therapist, <laughs> but like this stuff is definitely way above my head. But I
1: feel like I could, I could diagnose cardiac tamponade. I don't know. Yeah, do you think you could do it without like passing out or having like a complete like involuntary bowel movement? But probably not. <laughs> probably not. I, if
0: if I had a patient with cardiac tamponade, I'm gonna just turn in my medical license. I'm calling it a day right there and then. Um, all right, Zach. So seriously. Um, getting back to it here taking me to the ultimate section which is how to treat this very scary condition
1: yeah absolutely so i think in the big thing a big picture here is that these patients are going to be likely to be hemodynamically tenuous so they're going to be hypotensive they're going to be tachycardic they're going to look like crap and so the ultimate they're all my it. Yeah, yeah i know but it's it's, it's in, in reality is true you know they, they're going to look not very good so you want to try to be able to get them to the ultimate goal which is that pericardiosynthesis but until we get that done we get cardiology on board you're going to want to be able to try to stabilize their hemodynamics in, you Know, defend the map, the mean arterial pressure at all, at all, uh, in all situations. And so, what we're going to want to do is we want to keep their blood pressure that it's high enough that we're perfusing organs and perfusing the coronaries. And so, what we'll do is we'll put them on something like an inotrope. Generally, we can do something like dobutamine or milrinone. You just got to be careful when you use drugs like that because they may drop your pressure a little bit. They may give you a good contractility, but they dilate your vessels. And so, sometimes you may put them on like dobutamine or milrinone plus something that's going to squeeze the vessels a little bit. So like a press or something like, you know, epinephrine or norepinephrine generally, I think that, you know, one of the best drugs to really kind of get them started on is epine- I mean, norepinephrine. I really like that one. Unless they're bradycardic, I'll do epinephrine. But I think norepinephrine is one of the best ones because it'll give you some inotropic action and it also give you some presser type of effect as well. So I think that's kind of the big thing to do. The other thing is you can give them some IV fluids. I would just be very careful when you're giving them IV fluids. You don't want to cause them to get volume overloaded. So I would generally kind of give them fluids until I start seeing the the CUSMAL sign, which we can talk about in another video. You can see that particularly more in constricted pericarditis. But, you know, when I see a CUSMAL small sign, which is that paradoxical rise in the JVP um, during inspiration, I'm starting to say, okay, I think fluids aren't going to benefit them anymore. So I'll do inotropes, particularly, you know, one that's an inopressor like norepinephrine. I'll also give them IV fluids. Once I've done that and I got the pressure somewhat stabilized, the next thing I have to consider is that a lot of the times when we have these patients, we feel like we need to intubate them. They don't look like they don't look good and they could cardiovascularly collapse at any moment. And so sometimes we feel the need to intubate. I would actually urge you not to try to intubate these patients just because if you think about the, the pathophysiology, when you intubate somebody, you paralyze them, you take away their inspiratory drive. You don't allow for them to be able to suck air in and drop their intrathoracic pressure to pull blood into the right side of the heart. If you can't pull blood into the right side of the heart, you don't have any venous return and your cardiac output drops and they likely will PEA arrest. So I would try to avoid trying to intubate these patients. And if they are already intubated, lower their PEEP, their positive positive expiratory pressure, because that's going to keep their intrathoracic pressure on the lower end. So they get good venous return. So again, defend the MAP, try not to intubate them. I know it might sound crazy. And if they are intubated, keep the PEEP and the pressures on the chest low. Ultimately, the thing that we need to do is a pericardiosynthesis. That is the thing that is absolutely necessary. And there's different ways you can do this. You can do a sub-xiphoid view. You can do a peristernal long axis view. The whole goal is we have to take a needle, put that into the pericardial cavity, and pull the fluid off. Once we pull that fluid off, their hemodynamics might stabilize. And again, that clinches the diagnosis of tamponade. One of the things that you have to consider, though, is that if we do a pericardiosynthesis, and it's some condition where it's going to rapidly reaccumulate, they'll be back in tamponade. And so sometimes we actually have to do the pericardiosynthesis as a temporary thing and do the ultimate treatment which is actually put a drain in like a pericardial drain via window. And so that may be the next step to prevent the rapid reaccumulation and putting them back into tamponade. So that's what I would say we would definitely need to do for the treatment rob. So the one thing that I'm taking away from all of this
0: is that number one that the ultimate goal really Zach is that pericardiosynthesis.
1: Yep, absolutely. That has to happen immediately. That's the, that's the ultimate treatment goal. If you don't get that, it's likely not going to improve the patient.
0: Interesting. And then also, of course, if you can get the pericardial drain. Uh, but in the interim, we're going to try and stabilize their hemodynamics. We're going to try and defend the map. Sorry, that just is kind of funny. Like, do you guys like really say that like in the hospital. got <laughs> like, Defend the map. Defend the map at all causes. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's awesome. I think it's yeah. great. Um, and then, of course, uh, try not to take away their respiratory drive. And honestly, I always thought like if, if you're in this bad of a condition, like you, you you're going to get intubated.
1: Yeah. You, you know, it seems like it would be one of those conditions where it seems paradoxical but yeah, these are one of the situations I would say, you know, that their inspiratory drive is actually probably what's keeping them alive. So I would probably try to not intubate them because that 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 you definitely have a high chance of them uh, dropping the pressure enough that they can go into cardiac arrest. Gotcha. All right, cool. So, hey, we t- we covered
0: a ton of information about cardiac tamponade. Uh and in, in just what, 23 minutes here. We did we
1: did pretty good. Yeah, man. That's nothing like our, our whiteboard videos, baby. Oh, man. <laughs> those things are long. Those are a, a full-length feature film right there. <laughs> yeah, that's there. right. That's right. You got to get popcorn, sit down, cancel all your plans for the rest of the day. Yeah. But hey, th- and that's how we do it here at engineers. We we cover definition,
0: causes, pathophysiology, clinical features, physical exam findings, diagnosis, and treatment. So guys, once again, thank you so much for for being here for our first podcast. This is brand new to us, but we're having some fun and, and we want to just give you the full picture right We want to give you everything if you wanted to guys we have this this uh, this topic on a whiteboard video um but once again we're, we're getting all this information we're taking it from our website where we have our notes and illustrations that's what we're using right now and um and that's how we know this this information so well so i think that that um it'll be really beneficial for you all to check that out get a membership and um just keep learning Zach, closing thoughts. What
1: are you thinking, man? Yeah, man, this is really fun. I really enjoyed doing this and I'm glad we got to do this. But yeah, to end off, I think cardiac tamponade is a very interesting cardiac disease where that pericardial fluid just rapidly accumulates or, you know, accumulates slowly. But the whole point is we reach that pericardial stretch limit. We don't allow it to stretch in time. And so that compresses the heart, reduces the venous return to the heart. And again, that can lead to the classic findings, which is the Beck's triad, which is the hypotension, JVD and distant heart sounds. The ultimate diagnosis is echo. But really what we need is the pericardiocentesis to improve our hemodynamics which is going to clinch it and then we have to treat them with the pericardiocentesis but in the interim we have to stabilize their hemodynamics and if they need that drain because they're rapidly going to reaccumulate that fluid get them the drain so guys i really did hope you guys enjoyed this podcast and uh yeah as always until next time